the seventh chapter of the book of Romans, there is a typo error in the title. It should be a fellow struggler. And that doesn't make a bit of sense unless you know the title. A fellow struggler. Instead of a fellow struggles. That's true also. <laughs> now, I, when I was growing up in uh, Monday, Texas, uh, there wasn't a lot to do, you know, having live, living out on a farm in a little town named Monday. There wasn't a lot of, to do, so you'll understand why that on Saturday it was a big deal for me to listen to Bill Mack. He was a disc jockey on KWFT. Yeah, he is the Bill Mack that for you country and western country music fans who is the uh, guy on the number one trucking show. I know you all listen to that every night off of WBAP. Guy must be a hundred years old because he, he, when I was a kid growing up, he was this disc jockey out of w, KWFT. And they had this remote broadcast every Saturday morning from a western store in, in Wichita Falls called the Calot. I mean, what else is there to do? But it was kind of a uh, talk show, kind of a uh, disc jockey country and western uh, kind of music stuff. And I, I, I you know, I, I had in my mind what Bill Mack looked like. But you could uh, send in, you know, a, a, I think maybe a 50 cents or whatever, and he'd send you an 8 by 10 autographed picture. And I tell you what now, I saved up my 50 cents because I wanted an autographed picture of Bill Mack. Now I sent it in. And I couldn't wait to get that picture because I just had a, an idea, a mental picture in my mind that this was this handsome kind of a Marlboro cigarette type guy. And I got this 8 by 10 glossy of the ugliest human bear I have ever seen. He's this little old wimp. Had a, had a big old cowboy hat, and he looked just like a fox. I mean, have you ever seen a picture of, you, of Bill Mack? And um, I, I, I was really crushed, just to be honest with you, to get to, to find out what he really looked like. Now, now, why is it that you and I draw these mental images of what a person looks like from their voice or just the imagination of what this person looks like? And hardly is it ever really like that. Most of the time, it's a real disappointment, just to be truthful, honest with you. And that's what chapter 7 is, in my opinion, the book of Romans. It is a picture that the Apostle Paul presents of himself that really, really does boggle the mind. Now, all the way through the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul has been uh, giving us a photograph of people Chapters 1 through 3, he, he gives us the picture of a person outside of Christ, the person of, in sin. Now, it's a horrible description. And then he comes to chapters 4 and 5, and he pictures this person who is the same person, really, of chapters 1 through 3, but he's different now. And he has this look on his face of, uh, of peace and joy. He's the person that has been declared righteous. He's been justified. And he has peace with God. The war is over. And 
And he has found a right relationship with God. And all that he has drawn of, or pictured of a person who does not know Jesus Christ now is just gone as this person comes to know him. And then he comes to chapter 6 and he pictures the victorious Christian. And what we have here is a man with a smile on his face and his hands are lifted up in triumph. Or they're lifted up in praise to God. It's the picture of a person who lives in continuous and continual victory. And then he comes to chapter 7. And he pictures or presents a picture of himself that seems so inappropriate. As a matter of fact, this seems so inappropriate that some people say that somebody else wrote chapter 7 other than the Apostle Paul, and some say that this is a description of the Apostle before he was saved. It is a description of the Apostle when he was a Pharisee. It really isn't an, an autobiographical picture of the Apostle now. I mean, we just can't stand to think that this is true of the Apostle. Because in, in our minds, we have this picture of this powerful missionary, this tremendous evangelist who just took the world by storm. And it just doesn't seem possible that he could have the same struggles that all of us, that you and I, are familiar with. I mean, not the Apostle Paul. Surely he's not a fellow struggler. Now, I know all the theological presentations and explanations of chapter 7. And I know that there are grounds to believe any of them. I'm going to take my stand. My humble and accurate opinion is that this is a picture of the Apostle Paul in the reality of the struggle that comes in the Christian life. And what I want to do tonight, I hope you realize that what I'm trying to do here is to address the truth in regard to the Christian life as I see it. Now... We need to begin with the theoretical or the positional truth. And that theoretical positional truth is found in chapter 6, verse 17. It says, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. And theoretically, what he's saying is, positionally, what he's saying is that a man has been freed from the dominion of the sin nature. And he's no longer a slave to the sin nature. He has been freed from that dominion, and now he lives in service to God. Theoretically, positionally, that is true. But practically, practically, it is not true. Now, what about the law, says the Apostle Paul? If we have been freed from sin, what about the law? Theoretically, positionally. Read with me verses 1 through 4. Or do you not know, brethren, for I'm speaking to those who, are, who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then if while her husband is living... She is joined to another man. She shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she's not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Now, he's using an analogy. He's not, this is not a passage that deals with divorce, by the way. I mean, he does that in other places, but not here. He's using the analogy of the civil law 
And he's saying that when a person under the civil law is married, he's bound by law to that person until that person dies. And then he draws the analogy with regard to the Christian life. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God. And that's what he's saying. He said, now that you've died to sin, I mean, you were bound as a slave to sin, but Christ came... And in Christ you died to sin and you died to the law. You were, you were married to, 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 this, to this husband and this husband was the law. But when Christ came and the law died, you were free from the law so that you could marry another husband. And that husband, and the analogy, of course, is Jesus Christ. So that when Christ came... The law, and you're bound, you're, you're bondage to the law, that ceased. And now you're free to marry another husband, who is Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 6. He says, But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in the newness of the Spirit, watch this, and not in the oldness of the letter. And this is what he's saying, Now that Jesus has come, we don't live by rules and regulations anymore. We live on the basis of the impetus of the Holy Spirit who lives within us and the grace that's shed abroad in our heart. And now we serve Christ, not by rules and regulations, not because we are bound to do it by the law of God, but we do it because of the love we have for Him. Let me tell you something. The, the bondage of grace is greater than the bondage of the law. By the way, let me say parenthetical. Some people say, well, if I believe like you Baptists, you know, I just become a Christian and then I could do as I please. That's what we believe. The difference is that now it pleases us to please Him. And we're not bound by rules and regulations. We're bound by this greater bondage, which is this love that God has for us and us for Him. Now he says in verse 7, does that, what does that do to the law? Does that make the law sinful? No, he says, God forbid. May it never be. For there, in he lists in, in verse 7, three results of the law. Now get this down if you're taking notes. Most of you are not, but you might want to write your aunt and that'll help me to think you. It'll, that'll turn me on to see you writing something. There are three results of, uh, you know, that we get from the law. One is that the law defines sin. The Apostle Paul said, I didn't know that I was coveting. I didn't know that was a sin until the law said, thou shalt not covet. And then all of a sudden I realized that I was a lawbreaker because I coveted. Now I thought I was pretty, doing pretty good because, you know, I didn't commit adultery, I didn't, uh, I didn't steal, I didn't do murder. And then, then the law said, thou shalt not covet, and boom, I was convicted because I knew I coveted. So the law defines sin. Secondly, in verse 8 he says that the law provokes sin. For the law says, thou shalt not covet. And when the law says that, my nature says, that sounds interesting. You ever notice that? The law says you can't do this. That provokes the nature, this rebellious nature of ours to say, you know, you know that, that looks good to me. And the third thing he says in verse 13 is that the law exposes the cause of sin. And what Paul is saying is this, that you have an old sin nature that is given to sin. Now if I had a pain in my chest, and I go to the doctor, and he said, Doc, I've got this pain in my chest. And he said, well, let me, let's take some x-rays there. 
So he takes some x-rays of my chest, and he takes that little uh, negative, and he puts it up there on that light, and he says, you see, that? that's the cause of your pain right there, that, that tumor right there. Now I say, no, that's not the cause of my pain. That machine that took that x-ray, that's the cause of the pain. That's pretty ludicrous. The machine is not the cause of the pain. The machine just exposes the cause of the pain. And Paul says, this is what the law does. The law just exposes the cause of the sin. And the cause of the sin is, is that man has a propensity, an old sin nature, and that's the cause of his sin. Now, that's the theoretical, and I want you to follow me now in the transition, because I want to move from the theoretical the positional to the reality, the practical. Now listen to me carefully. I believe that positionally, theoretically, every believer in Christ is perfect. Now I know I'm going to be misquoted, but how could it be otherwise if I am in Christ and God has imputed to me the righteousness of Christ and He looks upon my life and what He sees is Christ positionally, Positionally, I am in Christ perfect. But practically, that is not true. I wish it were. Let me say parenthetically that I believe that the Christian life, that sanctification, whatever the term you want to use in the Christian life, is this. It is becoming what you already are. It is becoming in reality what you are positionally. It is becoming in the practical, what you are in the theoretical. And a person in Christ, if he's in Christ, he is positionally perfect. I wish I, wish I could say that was true practically but, practically, but it isn't. In our body, we have a nature, and that nature is alive, and it longs to be satisfied. And that's why he says in verse 24, Wretched man I am. I wish you could read that in the Greek. The Greek is so profound here, it says this simply, Wretched I am. Now that word wretched is an interesting word in the Greek. It means to build a callus, literally. It's the idea of working, you know, and you work until you build a callus. Some of you probably have never done that. Let me tell you what that's like. You know, you get you a hoe, you know, and you, you, you weed in the cotton patch and you just keep on working long enough and it builds a callus in your hand. Some of you never have experienced that, I can tell. But the Apostle Paul said, this, I just built this callus inside. Now watch this. He said, when I, when I came to know Jesus Christ, I went to work at being good. And I worked at it, and I worked at it until I built this callus. Let me tell you something. Sounds familiar to me. Because some of us have just worked and worked and worked at doing good and being good and pleasing God and obeying God and we've worked and we've built up our little system of how to do that. We've just built up this little callus on the inside. Wretched man I am, he said. Now, in reality, there are three facts that we need to face in the struggle. And they're found in verse 14. Let's look at that first one. Three facts. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold into bondage 
to sin. First fact you and I need to face is that we can't curb disobedience. We have a disobedient spirit. And we can't curb disobedience. I'm talking about in the flesh. Working at it in the flesh, we can't curb disobedience. Second fact we need to face is found in verse 15 and verse 18. And this is the fact that we do not fulfill our wishes. Let me read this amazing thing. For that which I am doing I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in my flesh in me that is in my flesh, for the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. I wonder how many times that counselors have heard that statement. I wish I could be better. I wish I could stop doing this. There's so much I want to do and can't. I wonder how many times that's been... That's been spoken in a pastor's study. We don't fulfill our wishes. It's not a matter of not wanting to for most of us. Everybody in this room tonight would want to become everything that he already is. And so tomorrow we get up and we say, I'm going to live in victory today. How many times have you said that? I'm going to love that old guy that I work with down there. That person lives across the hall. I'm I'm bound and determined I'm going to love him. I hate him, but I'm going to love him. And I'm not going to lose my temper today. I'm, just, I'm going to live in victory and we just can't work it up, can we? It's not that we don't want to, but the fact is we don't fulfill our wishes. Third fact to face, and this is it. Verse 17, we dare not ignore our nature. For the moments you do, you, get, you place yourself in great danger. It's what happened, it's what happened to Peter. But Jesus said there, Peter, tonight you will deny me three times. He said, everybody here might deny you, but I won't. Don't ignore the fact that there is a propensity in you to do evil. Um, That nature that lusted in you before you were saved will lust now. And that nature that would steal before you were saved will steal now. And that nature that would gossip and cause you to slander and say ugly things about other people will save them now. That nature is still present. Don't ignore that. All right, there's some truths in this passage to admit if you're following the notes. There are two truths. The first truth is that there's a civil war on the inside of us. And the second truth is that it will never end. It's never going to get, we'll never get to the place where we'll not have this constant struggle, this civil war within us. Let me say a word to the perfectionists. Any perfectionists here? Look at verse 21. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. Let me say this to the perfectionists. You'll never be perfect and your Christian life will never be flawless. Now, I know there's some tonight who, in this place who, are, who outlive me in the Christian life. But there's not a single person in this room who, whose Christian life is flawless. 
And there's nobody here in practical living, positional yes, practicality no, who is perfect. And here are the results to expect. Look at verse 22. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Paul was not continually victorious. As a matter of fact, down in Asia, he said, I despaired of life. He was living on the edge of suicide. He was so full of 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 unhappiness and despair by the way he lived. And, uh, I mean, that's a fact. And if we focus on the flesh, if we focus on the flesh, we'll despair and we'll quit because the answer is not there. I don't care how many times you come forward and rededicate your life. Well, where is the answer? We're going to get to that next week. But we got a clue in it when it says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that on the one hand I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, on the other hand, on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. What he's he's hinting at as he moves into chapter 8 is that the only way you'll ever live in victory is the moments that you're surrendered to the Spirit of God, to the indwelling Christ. I, uh, I heard Bertha Smith speaking over at the seminary. Now, Bertha Smith was, she was a saintly old lady. Some of you may have read, read, have, uh, you may have read her books, some of her books. Anybody read Bertha Smith's books? Yes. Saintliest lady I've ever met. I was in the line one day in the cafeteria, seminary, and she was ahead of me. She didn't know me from Adam, but I knew her, and I was just kind of listening. She went through the line and she was getting some stuff for breakfast. It was, you know, breakfast time. And this little girl behind the counter there said, Would you like some coffee? That was a wrong thing to say. And she looked at that girl and she said, Do I dare put something like that in the temple of the Holy Spirit? I quit drinking coffee. About a week, I, I did that. She came up to North Fort Worth Baptist Church while I was pastor, and we was in a. They, they guys were in a prayer meeting. And this guy was in this prayer meeting, in the prayer meeting there, who smoked. And it came around time for him to pray, and he started praying for somebody lost, and she just interrupted his prayer. She said, "How dare you pray for him to be saved when you're doing what you're doing?" Cut his prayer time a little short. I heard Bertha Smith at the seminary tell, and, and when she said it, you know, a lot, somebody said that, that you, anybody can say that he is one with God, as Jesus said, but he, he made the world believe it. Now, anybody can say that they live sinlessly, but she made me believe it when she said that she had lived for some odd 30 days or 35 days without ever sinning. I challenge the first person that can say that, you know. I don't know. I, I know this. I wasn't there, and I, I can't see into her heart. Let me tell you something. If she did live without sin, she didn't live it in the energy of the flesh. She lived under the control of the indwelling spirit of the living God. He's the only one that gives victory. He's the one that gives victory. 
And so the Apostle Paul he just comes after this picture of this struggle in life that all of us are familiar with. And then he says, who's going to deliver me from this death-like body? And then he shouts, thanks be to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the answer. Now how to survive this, and I want to give you four things, four statements that I think might help. They might not help you, but they help me, so I'll tell them about it, tell you about it. Number one, Frankly say, I don't understand. Frankly admit, I don't understand. That's what Paul said. Did you catch that? He said, I don't understand this. I don't understand that the things I hate, that's the thing I, that's the thing I do. The thing I hate, the thing I do. And the thing I love is the thing I leave undone. I don't understand it. I wrote down some things I don't understand. I don't understand how a husband and wife who felt that God brought them together and who really wanted their marriage to work, divorced. I don't understand how that why a man who wants to be used of God is refused from the mission field. I don't understand how a man can pray that God will give him a job and pray and pray and God never gives him a job. I don't understand how that, 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 a, that, that a person can, can in, in live the Christian life and his neighbor live a godless life and his neighbor get on better than he is. I don't understand how a person, the moment he surrenders his business to God, goes broke. I don't understand a lot of things. I thought when I got to be an old man, 35, that I'd have all the answers. When I got 35, I found that there are some times when there are no answers. Second thing, verse 18, try to accept your imperfection. Accept the fact that you're not perfect. Now, that's not resignation. It's not saying, okay, well, I'm going to do it. I'm, 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 I'm just, you know, that kind of stuff. There is a reaching unto that the Apostle Paul talked about, a reaching unto perfection, which is the goal and the, and the, and the motivation of the Christian life. But there is a neurotic reaching as well. And one of the things that I think we need to understand is that we are imperfect. And that leads me to number three, and that is leave room for some failure. And listen to me carefully. You are free to fail. You are free to fail. And it's wonderful to know that the Lord's love is not on a performance basis. I've got this uh, burden in my heart. I know a couple, they don't live here. They're very close to me. In fact, he's like a son, really. And his wife has depressive illness and she won't get help. And they've got this little girl about third grade. And the little girl is not an A student. But that mother drives her and drives her to make A's. And now the little girl has this tremendous blight. It's just a terrible story. He called me this week, and he was just at his wit's end. He, he trying to pastor a church, and, and all this screaming and yelling going on over at his house, and his wife abusing. I mean, you talk about abuse. Abusing that child, telling her she's stupid and ignorant, wish she dead, and all that kind of stuff because she can't make A's. And I thought, here's a little child growing up in a pastor's home who is taught that love is conditioned upon how well you do in school. 
And that's the concept we get of God when we live in that kind of an environment. And some of us feel like that, that, that God's love is, a, is on the basis of a performance orientation. And it isn't. You are free to fail. And the wonder of it all is that God loves a failure. Aren't you glad? Most of you are failures. And when he came home from the far country, I've thought about it a lot. I think about it when I pray and I just see myself after, you know, drifting away from God and being unfaithful to prayer and unfaithful to witness. I just remind myself and I'm like the prodigal and the father takes me back. See? And he loves me even though I have failed him. You are free to fail. And that's going to be a wonderful uh, thing when you wake up to it. And number four is, why don't you just go ahead and admit these feelings to God? Why don't you go ahead and say, verse 24, Wretched I am. I've worked so hard at trying to please everybody. I've worked so hard at trying to please God. Wretched I am. I've just built up a system. It's like a callus. God, I want you to love me just like I am. And he's going to say to you, I've been trying to tell you that all along, that I do. Let's pray together. Father, it helps a little bit to know we're not the only ones who struggle in the Christian life. Lord, help us to make the grand discovery that any victory, any growth, any triumph, any good comes only from the Christ who indwells us and that it is by the law of the Spirit, by the law that supersedes the law of the flesh, and our submitting to that Spirit of God that enables us to be more than conquerors. Father, I pray that you'll help us to lay down the efforts and the struggles in the flesh to work and do good and be good people and be models Christians and all that stuff. And just come to you and admit we are helpless and desperate. We'd like for you to control us and live your life out through us. And we know that Jesus Christ is the only one who can live the Christian life. He's the only one that can make it possible for us. We surrender to you, Lord. Our lives afresh. In Jesus' name.